You are listening to The Path Podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. This is Nathan with Tani and Ock. Welcome to another episode of The Path Podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Nathan. And thanks to everyone for tuning in today. I'm going to ask a series of questions to myself here, rhetorical in nature. How does a mountain biker maintain their ability to perform at peak levels into their 50s? What keeps someone with a single sponsor for 30 years? How did a single man help pioneer free riding and mountain bike trials? We are here with a very special treat tonight um, with none other than Hans No Way Ray as our special Mm -hmm. guest. So uh, tonight uh, we're going to skip some of our regular sections like listener questions and shop news, spend our time talking to to Hans. at 51 and still kicking, Hans has been with GT Bikes since 1987. I think a lot of our listeners may not have even been born in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm older than I look, Hans, so I, I'm closer. I, I'm right there with you. Um, he's been inducted into the Mountain Biking Hall of Fame. He's a multi-time, uh, multi-time World Cup champion, I believe a world traveler, and his foundation has helped provide over 10,000 bikes to people in need, which is which is pretty amazing. So uh, with that, Tani. Man, Ock, thanks for that great intro. You did your homework. <laughs> and and Hans, welcome. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. As usual, I feel like we had a whole podcast before the show started. <laughs> <laughs> From the moment you walked in the door. Man, you, our listeners would have been stoked to hear some some of those stories. Maybe we'll get back to some of them. <laughs> so, where do you want to start, Hans? You, you want you want to start anywhere in particular? I don't know. We can talk about bikes, or <laughs> <laughs> let's go straight for the most controversial topic. As usual, you mentioned you might want to weigh in on e-bikes. <laughs> yeah, what what's what's get what, that out of the way? What, what's your problem? <laughs> right? uh, well, well, maybe we could even start. Maybe we could even put it in context. I we we talked a little bit a, a little bit about your your recent urban adventure with another none another none other than uh, Missy Giove uh, and Timmy C. Yeah, Timmy C. He's the basis of Rage Against the Machine or Prophets of Rage now. Nice. And so, um, what what was this urban adventure, and how did e bikes kind of weave their way way into this urban adventure? Well, you know, life is an evolution of stuff, and so is mountain biking. And um, I've been doing these adventure trips now for over 20 years. And it's, I feel like the whole the whole word adventure has been massacred. And, you know, everybody who does a little outing calls it an adventure. And, and it's not that special anymore. I've been to over 70 countries, and I still love to travel. But it's the novelty has worn off, not just for me, but you turn on the TV and you see... You see people eating bucks in China or doing, you know, exotic stuff everywhere now. And and I I was thinking a friend's a friend's ride inspired that actually. Why don't start doing some more urban adventures? First of all, you really reach people can relate mm-hmm. to it a lot more in some ways. But so I came up with this idea of doing this Trans Angeles. It's basically a five day stage ride and we were basically traversing LA from the top of Mount Wilson through the herbal jungle, jungle of LA, like going by all these landmarks and right. stuff, but also going through these remote neighborhoods that you never heard of uh. and little dirt trails and stairways. And, and then 
all the way to riding the backbone trail to end up in Catalina, traversing Catalina. And nice. for the urban part, we, we switched bikes. We used e-bikes. It made sense. And for the hardcore trails like the Backbone Trail or the St. Gabriel Mountains, we used regular mountain bikes. And um, e-bikes is a new thing. I know some people are skeptical. Personally, I, I believe in them. I For me, everything, two wheels is fun. But... Um, You know, it doesn't have to be black and white. You know, I think there's 50 shades of gray in between and we can use those in the bike industry. We don't have to say, I hate e-bikes, but I love motorcycles or regular bikes. You know, it's like, it's like they, they both have their place, you know, just like Nordic skiing one day, Alpine skiing another day, you know. Right. So, and anyway, so that was the idea of this trip and that's how this urban adventure came about. <laughs> right, right. Sounds right. awesome. Yeah, that that's really cool. I mean, I've done a fair amount of riding in the San Gabes, and I I always speak speak well of it. It's the those mountains are awesome, but then even looking down into the neighborhoods, like you know, you're in this huge backcountry, and you look over, and there's downtown LA. You know, it's really cool. Oh, I know. It's like you stand on top of Mount Wilson at the observatory, and you look down into the LA basin, see downtown, see everything. I mean, we had a, you saw Mali, Santa Monica Mountains, you saw Catalina. But then you turn around 180 degrees and you see nothing mm -hmm. but nature, not one single structure. Right. You see just the St. Gabriel Mountains, Mount Baldy to the south, and nature like, like it looked like yeah. 100 years ago, you know, yep. or 150 years ago. And, and so it's such a cool contrast between nature and crazy chaos down below and rich and poor and harmony and <laughs> yeah, you name it. So you you wouldn't happen to have ridden through uh, like uh, Boyle Heights or or some of the East LA areas on your urban adventure? Um, what what are some of the areas within neighborhoods in LA? Maybe walk us through from the top of Mount Wilson down to through LA. Well, from the top of Mount Wilson, we took the Rim Trail down towards Chantry Flats, which is one of my all time favorite rides. Sure. I mean. You would not believe you're right next to, to downtown LA and there's like 50 foot waterfalls and stuff. It looks yeah. like Yosemite. Yeah. And then the next stage was from Pasadena to downtown, but we didn't go the fastest way necessarily. We went down the Arroyo Seco and we oh, went yeah. to some neighborhoods, um, including, I think there was Mount Washington and later near Dodger Stadium. There was some really cool single oh, track yeah. right next to the I-5. Oh, interesting, and, right. You come over to Radio Hill Gardens and drop into Chinatown. And then once we got into downtown, we, we bombarded the whole city. All these, we went through buildings and oh, out the other awesome. way and staircases and went down to Skid Row. We did a Skid, skid Mark contest in Skid Row. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so nice. yeah, so that was that. And then the, the, the other, the next stage was from basically from, Griffith Observatory all the way to the Santa Monica Pier. So that was kind of our traverse. And oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I did a, I did a cyclocross race once up by uh, Griffith. And um, yeah, we after the race, we kind of poked around some of the trails on the way to the back of the Hollywood sign. And there's some gnarly single tracks back there. Yeah, there's it's some super really, cool. really cool stuff. And um, yeah, it's a cool way to see the city. It's really, there's neighborhoods that you would have never thought they would be there. And you 
pop into a single trail into some rich neighborhood next to some mansions and the next thing you pop out at some shanty town like right. crystal meth lab that somebody <laughs> has in the bushes you know it's right. it's crazy you know yeah, yeah yeah sometimes when i drive through la with my with my with my family uh i purposely drive through some of those different neighborhoods because even in some of these really rough neighborhoods there's it's so vibrant the colors the the stores the people walking on the streets it's a pretty even in those neighborhoods it's amazing yeah i should have i should have brought you guys the the link to the film i just mm -hmm. got the rough cut it's, it's oh cool. you did oh, we can yeah. check oh awesome yeah. well, we'll look yeah. forward to seeing that yeah. maybe we can put that in the show notes yeah for sure yeah. yeah so so when is that supposed to come out well, initially I wanted to do just an online film, but it's it's it really turned into a half-hour documentary TV show, and now I'm I'm trying to shop it around to some TV stations because I think it would actually make a really good TV show, and we have all this cool music from Prophets of Rage and Audio Slave oh, on it. Yeah. Nice. Oh my god! Original oh, music? Or? You know, they they literally have a song on their new album called "Living on the One Ten, which is like perfect. <laughs> you know, right. but so it's a kind of that. That part worked really well too. So, so I feel like the story has a lot of, you know, I would love to see it in the LA Times. You know, it'd be a great place because everybody, we all think we know LA, but then you, yeah. you see stuff that you have never even seen before, you know, so it's, and, and I honestly, I want to do more of those. I want to do a trans Hong Kong and a trans Rome and a trans <laughs> nice. San Francisco. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so many cities have really cool mountains or nature Trans right Francisco. outside. Yeah. And you build that into the storyline. Imagine you go yeah. to Seattle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, anyway, like I mean, imagine Rome in Italy, like all these oh, ancient buildings and statues wow. and parks. And and you have awesome mountains on one side and you have the ocean on the right. other side. Right, 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 right. <laughs> So the, this is not an unusual thing for kind of your your career. You've come up with all sorts of really unique adventure ideas. How do you kind of like, I mean, you seem to have no no end to these adventure ideas, and you've been doing them for so long. I mean, like, I remember you went to Cuba, and you went down, um, there's one you did with Steve Pete where you were in the jungle and and looking for a lost tribe and, like, all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah, I guess when I first started these adventure trips, it wasn't just like doing some back wheel hops in front of a famous <laughs> statue, you know. I had a big interest in these cultures and places, but I wanted to be kind of become the modern day Indiana Jones. And instead of a donkey, I would have a bike to get to these places. <laughs> but I wanted to have a mission, a reason, like, yeah, sometimes it was a first descent or the first traverse, but... We were also sometimes in the footsteps of Che Guevara or Moses or or an alien dwarf tribe in China <laughs> and, and you name it and and or you know sometimes historical, sometimes cultural, sometimes we had a, a reason to go there. In recent years I often tied it in with some charity work, you know, not not just go to these places but also maybe give something back. And and so that was kind of a thing and that was kind of my whole career has been based on yeah I, I i guess i've done pioneer work to a degree you know like i mean somebody brought up to me recently how do you feel about the fact that what you started there's like a thousand people now who make a living in mountain biking non-racing right. you know like x racers or x free riders mm -hmm. or photo riders or yeah. people who are partly guide and partly like it's a lifestyle and 
and you know the Danny McCaskills of this world. You know, there's an amazing what these kids can do now, and it's it kind of hit me, and I, I didn't I never thought about it that way, and. And it's like same with these adventures. I feel like it's time for something new and maybe it's time for an urban adventure. You know, that's just a little detour in my, but it could be the next mini trend, you know, just like when the, you know, I was one of the first guys or the first guy to use right razor bars or, or yeah. tropercy pose later or asking for wider tires or shorter stems. And often people laughed at you and it wasn't so easy, you know, and, or, Bike companies ne ne necess didn't necessarily have budgets for guys like me. You know, they had maybe a right. budget for a, a racing team across country or downhill, but not for a guy that does backwheel yeah. hops or adventure trips or whatever. So that those are all things. But now the, these companies, like you know, like in a way, I mean, Danny McCaskill. I mean, look at him. What what youtube was for him was vhs videos for me you know yeah or like and, outdoor life network and yeah and i mean danny taking it to a whole new level now what he does not just on the bike but even with his whole fame and 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 career but there's a very a lot of similarities you know yeah and um companies like red bull they exclusively hire kind of guys to do kind of these odd things you know i mean yeah they do hire racers as well but yeah but so I, I remember seeing um maybe it was your your documentary where they were interviewing um some of your sponsors and early in the days you they had made a point that you always bring them a book of all your coverage throughout the year and and it kind of goes to what you're saying of pioneering the way is you showed how to show that value to the sponsors It's like this is what I'm doing for you well that's what people often don't realize they go like why do they, why do they sponsor this guy he's almost 50 or he's 50 <laughs> and he can't even do a backflip you know it's yeah. like you know but it's like that's not the point you know the point is that you deliver results and that you measure them you know yeah. at the end of the day and i think i've been good in in doing that and at one point i realized if i wanted to continue the stream i've had as like i had as a 16 year old I needed to be more than just a skilled bike rider and a great athlete. I needed to become a creative businessman as well. Mm, right. And and then I, I I realized I have to give my sponsors a return for their investment. I need to keep the media flow going. And right. you know, and I need to embrace new trends. And those were some things that I've always looked at. And I've always was into having the fun of things. You know, for me, I'm a big fan of racing and I still am. I race, but but the stopwatch and the training was sometimes too serious for me. I wanted the fun side of things, you know, and yeah. and that slowly evolved in the mid nineties, you know, with and then later with the free ride movement, they helped to embrace that even more. But but um that lifestyle of letting your hair down and not taking it too serious was something kind of yeah. new and even that had to be pioneered at one point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And it seems like it's such it's something almost for granted now. In, in this day where it's like, oh, yeah, I want to see the adventures of people essentially that just are experts and have more time than I do. I'm stuck at a desk. I want to see this stuff. And I'm interested in the products they're using. And But uh, it wasn't that clear at the time. It totally, totally new. But it's funny. It's like now it seems like, you know, watching surf adventure videos and climbing adventure videos and just non-competition outdoor adventure videos is I mean, it's like a given. I recently just went to the Banff Film Festival when it stopped in Costa Mesa, and it's film after film after film of of that idea, but totally unique when you started. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you've always really inspired some cool ride fantasies. I think you've put a lot of inspiration in a lot of riders' heads over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Live your dreams. Like I, I did recently this talk tour in England. I do talks and it's I kind of tell my story and show a lot of stuff from the past, but also more recent stuff I've been doing, you know, sure. you know, with adventure trips or my involvement with flow trails or with the charity work right. and, or just like, you know, a big part of that last talk I did was when I climbed Kilimanjaro and Mount Kenya back to back last year with, with Danny McCaskill. Right. And so, but it was very inspirational, these talks. And, and it was like often had kind of this underlying message of, yeah, having fun and, um, and go and live your dreams. And a lot of people afterwards tell me, Hey, you made me want to ride again. I'm going to, I'm going to travel. I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit my job and start, start my own business. And, and that's cool to hear. You right. Know? Right. Are you going to well, do any of these talks in the U S or? I want to. I honestly, I'm, I, I'm trying to get, you know, my foot in the door somewhere. It's not so easy. And these talks are a little bit more common in Europe. Mm. I, I, I need to, I would love to do them more. Yeah. I, I need to find somebody who can help me get them further or. Who's the target audience? On this particular tour, it was, it was kind of the, the mountain biker and outdoor enthusiast. But there was people literally coming to the talk and said, Hey, honestly, I didn't know who you were, but this was awesome. You know, like, you know, my friend told me to come along and, and because I'm not just making it too hardcore and I'm, and I'm telling a little bit how I've done things, even with the sponsorships, like right. you talked about earlier, right. but also with my adventures and this living this dream, but also, and then all these different um, facets, you know, f little funny stories from shooting videos with Mr. Chicks and mm. doing some stuff on Pacific Blue in Hollywood or, you know, so there was a lot of interesting little fun things, short videos, but um, the whole the whole message was a bit like why, how, and what it's all about. And I, I keep that thread throughout the whole talk. And, and then I've done also a few motivational talks. I did a keynote speech last year in Vegas at a software conference and oh. I was literally doing a one hour talk based on my career but drawing all these parallels to the software company sure. and literally after, right after me the CFO of, of Microsoft took over the stage so it was wow. kind of a wow. pretty cool oh. thing so yeah no that seems like a good fit I could see um, a lot of cubicle workers being inspired and, and kind of motivated by some of your stories and super relatable and interesting and but well, and I think something that we were talking about in the podcast before the podcast, <laughs> before we hit record, um, you, you touched on adventure. And like Nathan was saying, there's quote-unquote adventure videos and adventure shows on all the time. But are they really adventure? Ah, well, that's see, that's the interpretation, you know, like for somebody who doesn't do much, you know, just walking outside in the front garden and come back and be an adventure. <laughs> and, you know, like I always look at myself like I'm not a real adventurer. Look at like I, because I know people who are more hardcore. So mm -hmm. I'm like kind of like, <laughs> but I'm I'm getting inspired by these people, you right. know. So it's all, but you have to have your principles and you have to have your goals and yeah, it's hard. Sometimes it is like, you know, comparing apples and pears. But, but um, like one standard I always had. That's just one little rule. I always would carry my own bike. You know, right? 
Sometimes when we do these trips, we do have porters, for example. Right. They help you more like with the bigger logistics, like maybe the food for the week sure, or the, sure, the, the, sure. the tents. Right. But during the day, we would have our day pack. We would have our own bike Bikes, always right. and ever, you know, and the, the porters often help more like the film crew with their equipment. Right. So that's like one little rule I've had, you oh. know, for example. Well, and I, I think that it, it goes along with why your your adventures which are i would say are true adventures not not my own that i go ride my bike for half an hour but well, i not would say staged not and, staged and right produced and not fair grills i i i i have this rule i also when i do like a gnarly you know you sometimes have these photo ops there's a famous photo of me riding this arch it looks like in Kenyan national park which it's not it's in was in jordan and in the middle east right and it looked at first like oh this is would be so cool but it's unrideable because the end was almost vertical right and then i walked up there with dave watson at the time and he was like i'm out of here dude and i was like <laughs> i think i can actually write this and i found this line and he had to do this really super sketchy traverse halfway down and you could go around and come actually down to the arch. And it was rideable, and we rode it. It's one of my all-time favorite pictures. Oh, wow. but, but my thing is, I, I always want to, you know, not just pose for a photo. I want right. to actually be done, right. you know, right. have done it. So. Well, and I think that's part of what inspires people. I mean, they see your your urban adventure, your uh, trans LA or your transangelus <laughs> um, urban adventure, um this, you know, the arch that you talk about, uh, Kilimanjaro, all of these things are are above and beyond. And so when you say adventure, it's of a different kind, almost a different thing than when most people think adventure. Yeah, there's all different uh, scenarios. You know, there's also sometimes I, I have been part of my job. I've been working quite a bit with the tourism industry, with ski resorts and oh, places right. and bike parks, done consulting and being a spokesperson for places like Livigno in Italy. But um, and sometimes I I create a touristical product. You know, we we build all these flow trails in Livigno, and it's super cool stuff. But they have a lift access. And I said, why don't we do this one-day tour, kind of modeled after the whole enchilada, where we have we called it the tutti frutti, and it's basically <laughs> all the trails. And one day you take the lift up, and it's like forty-five kilometers of downhill single trail stuff. Like That's it's not cool. super, it's not hardcore, so it's blue and red stuff. The whole family can do it. Oh, Some nice. of the stuff is 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 purpose-built flow trails. Some of the stuff is a bit more natural, but it's a super cool product and. Yeah, I wouldn't call this adventure. I call those kind of things mini adventures. But sometimes I do <laughs> right. trips like this to just inspire people to ride because often, yeah, some of the trips I wouldn't necessarily recommend people to go to, <laughs> but other trips are very much you know you could uh, accessible go and do right. them. Yeah, yeah, very much. So, um, uh, just to clear, is this something that you go to Italy and you guide for for that loop, or is that something you kind of pioneered the loop and then other guides do for guests? Yeah, other, they, have, they have local guides who do it. Or you can do it self-guided. We have it marked, okay. and it's like uh, we can do it on your own pace. I mean, a good rider can do the whole thing and probably under, right under four hours, but there's all these cool mountain restaurants and stuff, and you want to oh, stop nice. and go for a swim or, or pet a cow or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Were yeah. these trails there? Did you have to build them? No, we built a lot of them. I didn't wow. build them, I, but I consulted them, and I gave them this. I coined the phrase uh, a few years ago called flow country. And the flow country trail was for me a, 
a flow trail that's never steep, never extreme, and never dangerous. In my opinion, the you know, Bissler started as a hardcore bike park, and they worked their way down the pyramid. Right. And a lot of people in the world tried to copy that. But actually, the, the truth is, if you want to have success, you have to start at the bottom of the pyramid and work your way up. And it's the, you need to build trails for the masses. And the problem is often the hardcore riders build the trails and they say, oh, yeah, but this one is really easy. It's only a 10-foot jump, you know. <laughs> and it's like, but your girlfriend or your, you, you, right. most people can't ride it, you know. So you had to start building. And then people go like, yeah, but then it's a boring trail. And that's not true either. If you build a trail right, an easy trail, Somebody like a Steve Peach just goes faster or doubles up stuff, <laughs> right, and right. Yeah. and yeah. and the flow country was kind of a a, a, fra a, a phrase I uh, I coined, you know, for a certain kind of flow trail in this whole family of flow trails, and 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 it has proven actually that these kind of trails are the most popular, and a lot of the trail centers building building them, and the truth is. Anybody can ride them. You can take a kit there. You can ride them on a cyclocross bike or a downhill bike. Best is probably something in between. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but so that's, that's just one of these examples. And we built a lot of these kind of trails in Livigno. And Livigno always had a great infrastructure. They hosted the world in 2005. They have a hardcore bike park on one side and this more trail center bike park on the other. They're one of the major Transalp hubs. So many of the famous Transalp routes happen oh, to come through really? Livigno. Oh, I didn't realize that. So and and all the roadies go there for altitude uh, training and stuff. It's 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 really a mecca for for biking. Help us understand how steep, how easy, how hard. Have you ridden like um, the flow trails and where we ride in Santa Cruz? Oc? Oh. Um. I think oh, it's, called it's called the flow trails. <laughs> the right. demo forest. Right. Yeah, demo Is forest. It around that, easier, you know, I have It's probably a little bit like this. It's maybe even a bit tamer. Um, right. But yeah, and you, you, you the, the most important thing is if you want to build a, a trail that's in quotation marks beginner friendly, you have to build predictable trails. Right. Because then people can let their hair down and go and don't have to have the desk grip the whole time. You form a trust for and, the trail. And every, if you have mm. jumps, they have to be consistent. You cannot have a gnarly lip or a short landing, one and a long landing, or, you know, you, you have to build it so it's predictable. And, and you know, there's like a, a rule of thumb, like, you know, go with 6% and not steeper. And, and especially oh, also, you cannot have a, a trail that's like 90% beginner friendly and then you have a 10% steep <laughs> section no. because you were too lazy to, to, or it was too expensive to build, make it beginner friendly. Then it's not a beginner trail. The trail is only as, can only be rated as easy as the, as, as the, the most the, difficult part. Exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's a really cool point because like I've I've noticed I've been riding for a really long time you know over twenty years and as I've gotten friends into the sport from time to time it's weird how if you've been doing it for a long time your perspective perspective about what's hard or what's easy is so skewed but it sounds like you've got a really good perspective on that how how did you kind of see it from the other angle because your skill levels were so high so early well I've been always around like I've been doing. I was doing like how-to books and guiding tours and, and it happened to me just like it happened to all of us. We take somebody on a ride and go like, this is a really easy ride. And <laughs> they were like, you know what? I, I'm never going to ride bikes again. You know, this was oh, right. way over my head. You know, we all done this mistake. And, and I think, like I said earlier, I think that the bike parks were way too hardcore. And, and even yeah. if, if you talk to the people who built the Whistler bike park, you know, I mean, that was a, 
Cinderella's Cinderella story in many ways, but even they would tell you right now if they could do it all over again, they would build the whole park two percent less deep because mm. it would be much more beginner friendly, would be way less maintenance in you know, all this yeah. stuff. So, so you live and learn, and I think a lot of the ski resorts they they underestimated that trail building is an art. There's really it's an it's it's an art that is you know people think oh as long as you can swing a shovel you know you can build a trail or move some dirt right. and it's not you know yeah and that's what people had to learn the hard way and i think slowly now people start to appreciate good trail builders from not so good trail builders and yeah well you know uh just locally one of the places i, I i'm pretty sure you've been up there is that new santa's village bike park mm. i think they did a fantastic yeah. job with that that yeah. was and it, it looks like very well planned from the beginning, laid out well. I met the kid who built that, and 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 I wrote there once or twice. And the main line he built, I, I I've been saying, I think it's the best jump line in all of California that I've I written. I hundred percent agree. Yeah, and he, even the guys here around the corner from your shop um, at Santiago Oaks, those trails, you know, they they pretty good for for California standards. For you all know, levels. On, a, on a global standard, they. You know, like, I mean, they've been building way better trail centers in England for years, you know, for 20 years. But but for California, what they built there is 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 pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was really cool to see that. And and um, I, it's it's really neat to see these bike parts popping up where it, it now is getting easier to invite your friends that maybe haven't ridden before. Like you have an athletic friend who's like, hey, you want to try mountain biking? And you're like, I got the place. I got the place, you know, and and we can all. You can do this trail. I can do that trail, and we can meet for lunch. And so it's really nice to see that development. It sounds like you're kind of on the forefront with that in in Europe. Yeah, Europe. They, you know, stuff is popping up everywhere. And we do slow country trails. We build a few. I, I Didi Schneider was one. Of, he's a famous trail builder in Germany, and he's built over 300 bike parks and tracks and trails and stuff. And he was with me this whole time with his slow country, and he actually built the first few trails and. He built one in his bike park, and at the beginning, all the hardcore guys were like, you know, eventually they said, well, let's let's go over and try that new beginner trail. And then they would only ride that trail. And yeah. the next thing, you know, is their girlfriend, who would always just sit in the car park waiting for them to finish the ride, reading a magazine, they would start riding a bike because they had a gateway truck by with a Flow Country trail. Right. And they could ride the same trail than their boyfriend, you know? Yeah. And they had something to get into it. And it's like, and all of a sudden... You had a little woman movement in Germany that we didn't yeah. have before, you know, of writers, you know. So yeah, well, and and right there, you, it seems like your focus on hey, how do we get more people into this sport? Um, it, that's another kind of unintended benefit of essentially supporting a non-racer because racers are out there trying to get results and focusing on that. But are they really getting more people into the sport? Like you're on the front lines, actually growing the sport. Well, yeah, and I, I feel, I feel a little bit of an obligation. You know, I know it's sometimes a two-edged sword. You know, like I remember these hills when we owned them. You know, I could yeah. look at the tire mark in the dirt. Yeah. I know, oh, this was Tani who rode here with his, oh, yeah. with his Farmer John Tayoga tire or whatever. You know, <laughs> yeah. but you know, those days are over. And yes, we have to share the mountain with other trail users and people. And you know, that's, I mean. That's like what it is, what the big problem is for some people with the e-bikes now that coming in and they want a piece of that cake. And I can see how people are hesitant. And I, I see, I know all the arguments, pro and con, but it wasn't different than when, 
when mountain bikers first came and had to, and the hikers had to share with us, you know, they were like, oh my God, right. we, well, this was our backyard mm -hmm. and now we have to share right. with bikers. And just imagine how it was with the horse carriages when the first automotives <laughs> uh, came along, right. you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, I think we can adapt and we can deal with it. You know, there's, there's a lot worse things we have to deal with, you know? When I <laughs> yeah, you couldn't agree more with that. Some of these neighborhoods that used to be riding terrain and now there's like 800 houses there, you know? And, <laughs> All right. Yeah. And Tell somebody gets it. bent out of shape because I ride on a dirt trail, you know? It's, it's like, or, or because your bike has a little bit of electric help up the hill. You know, it's like. Well, it's not cheating. It's not, it's only cheating if you race. Yeah. And you know what? The, the, the I, I think one of the problems is that the bike industry in general is trying a little bit too hard to push the e-bike into the mountain bike mold and copy everything, carbon copy everything over. And I think they need, a lot of it will, is very similar, you know. Right. And a lot of it will automatically uh, copy over. But I think we need to let the e-bike develop its own identity a little bit, you know. Yeah. And, And in my personal opinion, I'm like not a fan of e-bike racing. I think, yeah, there is a place and there will be a group of people who will be into that. But that's not, that's not why I would want to engage into e-bikes yeah. or to be the KOM or any of that stuff. Right. <laughs> the e-bike KOM. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And, and the few times that I've ridden the e-bikes, the big thing that rings out to me is if I have two hours of time, which the batteries don't last a whole lot longer than that, is I can get a couple more downhills in that time and I don't have to focus as much. It's a it's a time shift. I'm still going to go ride for two hours. I'm still going to ride the same trails, but I might get one more trail in or two more trails in. And I get a little bit more time on the downhills and a little less time on the climbs. And yeah. it's it's it doesn't seem a whole lot more complicated than that because when I'm, I've ridden them going downhill, it's it's a bit of a hindrance. It just helps you on the climb just climb like you're a well-tuned cross-country racer versus a, a guy that's just struggling, you know? I know we, we all know that a hardcore ride, when you really go hard on a regular mountain bike, can be very satisfying if you give yeah. it all. And But not everybody has it in them to do that and to experience yeah. that and push themselves that hard. And and the one thing I found out with the e-bike is I, 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 I gained the feeling back that was almost lost, the feeling... You know, when, when you were a little boy and you rode your bike all afternoon and then you go inside for dinner and then you have another half hour before it gets dark and you go out again and yeah, practice your wheelies exactly. or so. And that feeling of, I can't wait to get on the bike again. And you know what? On the e-bike, that kind of feeling has crept back, you know, where it's, yeah. it's fun. It's not... I love to have a hard workout, but sometimes I just want to have fun and play with the bike and right. and actually laugh going up the hill, not just <laughs> going, oh my right. God, another hill. Yeah. Like we used to, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think we've talked about it on the show before that I kind of think that um, we're going we're gonna to bear the burden of the bad deeds of e-bikers. As mountain bikers and as, as the bike industry, we're going to, and, and as trail users, We're going to pay the price for any bad deeds that e-bikers do anyway, and we might as well take them into the fold so we can try to educate them and teach them the etiquette, teach them how to be responsible trail users. And Yeah, and we need to – it's a responsibility for the industry and for the people who sell the bikes on own one to, to educate the people about trail etiquette and trail etiquette can be different in my opinion e-bikers should always give right of way up and down it's not just the old rule of you know 
the you know the uphill rider has a right of way in, in my opinion why, why should you know that's fine e-bike should give right of way you know but people need to educate people about it and so how do you pass a not e-biker on the uphill without pissing them off if uh, they're a little sensitive well you don't flip him off for <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I feel sometimes guilty when I do it. And I think it's I put that on myself. Most people don't mind. Right. Um and yes, and even in America people have come around a lot in the last 2 years in oh. even my friendships and and the one thing is the biggest critics are usually the ones who've never tried one. For sure. And even if you put them on it and even if they want to say, you know what, I I still want to hate the e-bikes, but I have to admit they're fun. You know, they cannot wipe the grin off their right, face. Right, they're saying through a smile. There's 99% of that, you know, like right. literally. So, I don't know, you, you have to say nothing, you know. It's like, hey, I'm not racing you, dude. You know, that's what you say. It's like, what's the problem? You know, like, you, you wouldn't yell at me if I drive up Park Avenue in my car <laughs> and park on the top, right. you know, and you ride up there to get to the trailhead. It's like, and you don't yell at the guy who takes a ski lift in Whistler up, you know. It's some people do, but maybe we don't need to worry about them. Yeah, but but people are getting it's way more accepted now than it used to right. be for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's it's also I mean I think I can't imagine anyone getting upset with you, Hans, riding up the hill, right? I mean, oh, not, just, not just because you're Hans, right? But, but just you're like you're, you're, oh, you're, you're spreading good vibes, There's right? at least there's a bunch of people who just started to unfollow me on Twitter and, and Instagram. <laughs> no, just right really? now I mentioned the word pro e-bike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but hey. But I mean, you're spreading good vibes. And I think like so much of on the trail, if you're spreading good vibes, whether you're hiking, horse, horse riding, riding, e-biking, I just feel like spreading good vibes yeah. overcomes a lot of that. Yeah, there's a fine line, and we all have to draw our line where we want to. Honestly, I'm a supporter of the Class 1 e-bikes, not all the throttle stuff. I'm not, a, I'm not into that. I'm not into people like taking modifying the chips and stuff because that will that will lead to problems. That will lead to insurance problems and, and that the bikes will get banned. And li right now, more in Europe than here, but even here too, luckily e-bikes are kind of considered uh, bicycles. Right. But if the legislation changes, that could change this whole trend. And I think it would be a shame, you know, not for many reasons. For once, there's a lot of people who can experience biking and nature, right. which they wouldn't. But it's also, I think it's a really good thing for the bike industry with a lot you know, most of us are in working in the bike industry, and it's right. it's a good thing for the industry. It could be, and so, and and it's about as powerful as the average. I think people, some some of our listeners probably have blenders that are more powerful than the e bike motors. I think so. I think it's th what, three quarters of a horsepower or something, if that. Maybe a garbage disposal is as powerful <laughs> as an e bike. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you're saying strictly pedal assist and strictly no throttle and 19 miles an hour max. Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the accepted California, I think, standard and seems solid. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I had this conversation with the Imba guys. Long, they were, they have, they still torn of what to do because they, they are losing loyal followers. But then, and and we had this argument, and I said, you know, at the end of the day, the e-mountain biker has 
almost everything in common with the bike rider. He, he wears bike clothes. He wants to ride on bike trails. He has bike helmet. He has the biking mentality. His friends are bike riders. He, you know, he's not a motorcycle rider, you know, and, and imagine like how the law is here already in California. If I would, strictly speaking, I could only ride a mountain bike where I could ride my 500 enduro out in, out in the Hesperia desert or so. Right. And I have to be on a, on a sandy, washed out little trail that's not maintained on a bicycle that would have problems even right. moving in there. And then a guy in a 500, with a 500 KTM, with a full-face helmet, who doesn't hear me coming because I don't have an engine that makes a noise, you know, like all of a sudden. And, you know, if you're an older guy who's not that fit anymore, you, all of a sudden you cannot ride with your friends anymore. Right. You have to drive two hours to the desert to go for a bike ride. It's right. like, so. Yeah. Have you heard, heard, Hans, if Orange County Parks might start allowing e-bikes sometime in the future? Yeah, they. it's up to their, you know, I heard in Santa Monica, they, they allowed it now. You know, like for first there was a ruling generally no, but if the if the, the the rangers have it's to their discretion and so far in Orange County I think they have been cool about it. We just have to make sure it doesn't get out of hand, you know, there, there's a responsibility from the e bikers that to behave and to show some etiquette and to to integrate into the system to make it smooth, you know, otherwise There's would, a rumor that some of the park rangers in laguna might stop being cool about it well i i wouldn't be surprised i i kind of expect that to happen very soon but the number of e-bikes in in the hills is growing and i don't know yeah. how they could police it right um it's it's gonna be it's gonna it would be a logistical challenge too so but hopefully we'll find a compromise where we don't have to um run from each other where we can work together yeah you know, uh, a lot of our listeners, we get a lot of technical feedback. People really like the techie side of things. So is there, e-bikes are a little new. You've been playing with them for a while. Are there anything like setup differences, parts pick differences, suspension, that, suspension differences that you've, you that are kind of jumping out at you or you're like, hey, this is where they're going or some kind of technical differences. Trials-y, like, no, just kidding. <laughs> well, th there is a lot of differences, but at the end, there's more and more you get into it and there's more and more fine-tune it and develop it, there's more and more it gets the same. It's just mm -hmm. a little bit of a heavier bike and it has more traction, but, you know, at the beginning you feel like you cannot go that fast downhill, but at the end you you can go just as fast. And yeah. th those big plus-size tires, they're really forgiving they really um, help out a lot. Um, uphill, you can do steeper stuff that you couldn't have done before. These widow makers, you know, if you have yeah. the right gearing and if you do have the skills, that's something I personally find really fun to do stuff that I couldn't done before or to go further out somewhere and ride, you know, like you can go twice as far as you would on a yeah. regular ride. And so, I mean, so those kind of things. But... Um, Yes, companies developing beefier parts, bigger brakes, bigger, you know, Fox has an e-optimized fork and which yeah. is basically the internals are the same, but the, the crown is a bit stronger and the legging, you know, it's a Stratches bit, like it's beefier, be thicker, you know, right? and, and the tires, you know, get developed, you know, better with better side walls. So, um, wider rims, but that's a trend anyway. I think even yeah. for normal bikes and, and I think before long, and 
probably for all bikes, I, I think we're going to have bigger front wheels than rear wheels, you know, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to, you know, I mean, motorcycles come in, you just have to look at that. And they've, yeah. they, they're 50 years ahead of us and they, you know, they came to this and... <laughs> The people who are really looking into the the wheel sizing, it makes sense. We've yeah. talked about that a lot on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, Tony's a big advocate of uh, yeah, six fifty B rear twenty nine front. And, and yeah. we didn't even man, we didn't even talk about it before. There's no money exchange to get Hans to bring that up on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So what? I, I'm kind of going to p- piss on myself here if I don't ask this question. <laughs> on your urban adventure, where Missy Giove had a chance to ride the e-bike what were some of the the comments and antics that were going on uh from her perspective on, on the e-bike this is fucking rad this is the fucking raddest thing i'm fucking done <laughs> so you, i mean we didn't really talk about this but you got missy back out on a bike yeah yeah i mean i i ran into her like she, she started showing her face she was 10 years kind of gone from the industry and i known her from the day basically you know uh, but she was out of all of our lives, and I know she showed up for Wyndham for a World Cup, and I know then she showed up at the Sea Order. I think it was two years ago, maybe one year ago, right? And I, and that's when I, for the first time, saw her in a long time, and and I told her, look, hey, I want to do a trip with you, and I wanted to invite her to Italy on this Tutti Frutti Ooh. trip I was doing, and she she didn't have a passport at the time. And um, she was on <laughs> probation, and and um, but that's a different story. And <laughs> so then, anyway, so then when this Trans Angeles trip came along, I thought, ah, she would be because I the idea was to kind of have this rock star scene with Timmy C and Taylor Hawkins was supposed to be around from the Foo Fighters, the, fi- the drummer. Oh, He's a so Tim from Rage, yeah, Missy Jovi, yeah. <laughs> so that's what the rock stars and Taylor Hawkins was supposed to come and I literally actually planned the trip to the end of his tour he was on a three months tour and then he was he was committed to come for at least a day and then uh, they 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 hired they scheduled them for Saturday night live and they, they had to go straight <laughs> you got trumped they, yeah so yeah. so that was that so that's all cool though but um uh we had missy was enough of a rock star to make up for <laughs> <laughs> for Elvis and Jimi Hendrix could get together. Oh man, <laughs> what a legend! Two le- two legends, man. Three legends on that. Yeah, in, in, yeah. Their, in their own rights. Yeah, if you if you count Tim as a legend, yeah. <laughs> you know, Tim is a hardcore. He is a really hardcore bike. He's a good rider. He's a great rider, and I mean. To, to all his to his credit, I mean, he has done stuff like Leadville 100 and the Race Across wow. America. He, yeah, he's no joke. He's done Ram? Yeah, he's done it in a four-man team, and one of his guys got run over, I don't know, halfway through the race. So they, oh, they, didn't, no. they didn't finish, but they were in the lead of the four-man, whatever. Oh, man. But he's done a lot of – he was one of the first persons I knew after Mark Weir who did like a million vertical feet on Strava. You know, oh, wow. So he's like a hardcore rider, but now he is so hooked on e-bikes. I mean, I literally talked to him for an hour today on the phone, like, and he tells me all these things that I've never even heard of. And he he's really smart too with the technology and his great ideas of how to improve them. But he's really into riding them, and 
Yeah. And and he, he likes he likes to pull people's chain a little bit, <laughs> like, you know, mess with like roadies and stuff, like passing them. I'm a bike commuter, so I, I can I know the feeling. <laughs> so where does he see it going? What's it? What's it? What are his predictions? Oh, he thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> yeah, long travel. Yeah, everything from long travel to hardcore stuff to he starts now riding with his wife and kid. He he could never ride with his wife and kids. They, now he goes like he goes on a ride with his friends, comes back and goes another ride with the wife, and he rides in the eco mode. The, the wife fly rides in the boost mode, yep. and um, you know and levels the playing field. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. What what e bike do you have? I have the new GT has an e bike, the GT Verb. It's a it's a bike that they don't have in America right now. So um, it's a full suspension bike. It's Which actually, motor? It's a Shimano motor. That, that seems like maybe it's the best motor. I think so. I think so. I've actually ridden quite a few e-bikes in the last uh, few years. And I actually had my first e-bike 10 years ago, way before oh, people wow. are getting into it. I, I I put a Bionic system into one of my GT Force bikes. Whoa. and. I wrote it mainly to the post office and stuff, but I <laughs> believed in it. And I was actually ridiculed a lot. I remember in Europe, Europe is like, in Germany, e-bikes are, I, I, I want to say 100%, but 90% accepted. I mean, they like, it's cool, it's, nobody gives you, uh, you know, and and even there in Germany five years ago, it wasn't like that, and people were like, "Oh, Hans, you're getting old. You're getting <laughs> gray hair, belly. You know, it's like, you know, it's like." But and then all of a sudden, they discovered them. <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere. Like like, so many people. Yeah, these are really cool. It's like dropper posts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What e-bike does Tim ride? Tim has a Levo. Okay. Yeah. Do you guys think when, if, if and when they come to the states, that pivot e-bike might be interesting? Has he talked about that? The pivot? Yeah, I think so. I think those things look nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you're saying Tim was tinkering with them. Is he playing with the electronics? Is he understanding like how to change batteries or like is he getting onto the electronic side of things? Yeah, he's 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 looking into all those things. He's yeah. um he's testing out the the limits in many ways. But um he um he's just like good. He would like literally go up to a, man, a component manufacturer and tell him, hey, these kind of handlebars would make sense for an e-bike. And you think about it and you go like, yeah, you got a point. You know, like, and, mm -hmm. and it's just like yeah. an example. But he has ideas that are, and I, I, I known Tim for 20 years and I introduced him to product managers, like high up guys, like at, at Shimano or GT. And, and they told me afterwards, man, this guy knows more than 80% of the product managers we work with in the industry, you know, like yeah. they could talk <laughs> suspension systems, difference between the horse link and the whatever, you know, and, you know, he would, you know, he knows his stuff, you know, so I've, yeah, I have to give him props for that. Yeah. I remember hearing an anecdotal story that he had a, like a full size shipping container full of bikes in like Santa Monica or something. Like he has, he's had so many bikes. It's just incredible. He has a lot of bikes and certain things, bass guitars and football helmets. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but he, um, yeah. But you know what? He single handedly has. First of all, I, I've said this before. He has more passion for biking than eighty percent of the pro riders I know or met. Yeah. And and he has also single handedly got more people to start riding bikes or 
got them to buy a bike or introduced them to biking, then then I don't know man, many more people. He's really a, yeah. an advocate for for cycling, you know. So um, that's pretty cool. Would you be willing to come back with and, and bring him along with you? <laughs> yeah, we bring him along. He used to go in and out of the path all the time. Yeah. He used to live right down the street, actually. Yeah, he was in Orange Park Acres or something, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. I've I've seen him on rides before. Yeah, I can totally vouch. No slouch in, I, in both handling and pedaling. I remember I helped him mount a child seat on a Kona Kahuna hardtail. <laughs> And it had disc brakes, and this was back before any of the child seats had a, any a, any way to be mounted on a bike with disc brakes. And it, the strut that would go onto the dropout interfered with the disc brake, and I had to make a spacer. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's cool. He learned things the hard way. His cross-country bike used to be literally a downhill rig. He used to have a box of fork that he would tie down with a dog leash. I remember you the know, dog for the leash uptils, days. Yeah. And then take the, take the, the cord off, and, and he would... But he was like one of the first guys to realize the big seats with the long seats that if you have a long nose, how how yeah. that's a huge advantage, especially for climbing. He used to have one of those big Tayoga seats and now he discovered oh. the SQ lap seats. Yeah. But he you know, he's a lot of these things, like he was on him like way before, you know, bigger tires, dropper posts, you know. So anyway, enough yeah. of those rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It just occurred to me, I can't remember, do you ride clip-ins when you ride, or flats? And not uh, Recently, I, I went back to flats. I, I used to ride clip-ins for a long time for, for mountain biking stuff. When I do trials, obviously, I always flat. And, and then I started a little bit longer ago when I started doing downhill runs or bike park runs. I would ride flats also. Especially with the, the shoe, you know, the soles, those stealth rubbers, right. you know, 5'10, like the, the, yeah. the 510 and the Adidas shoes have is, is so good now. And, and then, but it's also the, the really technical stuff I like to get off. And it had, it has several reasons. We hike a lot too. And hiking yeah. in a pair of outdoor shoes, you know, is, is a lot nicer than, than in cycling shoes. And I had this pretty gnarly foot injury that almost ended my career. 10 years ago that was and so ever since then i have a little bit of numbness sometimes in my foot so but um but anyway so yeah i do write uh the last couple of years exclusively flats Ooh, cool oh, nice exclusively yeah only Ooh. except on my road bike i got talked into a road bike ride in the alps <laughs> by, by gary from from cliff bar and i had to actually seriously trained <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> just for a ride huh yeah that's cool um one of the things we we had made a note about and you know i i have a little bit of a trials background just like you know amateur level around california and i you know i was playing with it in 2005 or so and compared to then and now like my perspective is it's like almost non-existent at like an amateur level and you know just a handful of people still participating what are your thoughts on kind of the the trials um landscape these days yeah it's trials was always a little bit the unwanted stepchild and partly because there was never really the, the right foundation or federation behind it and partly it's it's a very training intensive sport you don't just sit on the bike and have success it's yeah. actually very obvious if you're not good i can it's very obvious like if you ride up a hill 
you know, like you can ride up the same hill than Nino Shorter. You might be five minutes or ten minutes slower than him, but you make it up there eventually. But yeah. either you can bunny hop up a curb or not, or either you can bunny hop up a three foot wall or not. You know, and it's yeah. it's quite obvious. So, so that and I think trials, yes, competition wise, it it's very quiet here in the U.S., especially in Europe and internationally. They have incredible competitions. Those guys do things you cannot imagine. I mean, yeah. physically impossible to get from there to there with you know like really cool stuff and. But I think the urban trial scene has kind of taken over the spotlight, and that's probably has to be credited to Danny McCaskill, you know, with his whole thing. There's a lot of guys who ride trials, but not in a competitive format, more like right. you know, in the urban scene, and and that is there. But it's always going to be one of those slightly alienated uh, yeah. disciplines. Well, well, I think that scene is you, Ryan Leach, and then now Danny McCaskill, the urban trials. And I always, we had a time at the path when we really thought that that was like a real business opportunity and that we were going to grow the urban trial scene, like the skate scene almost. Yeah. <clears throat> that kind of fizzled out. But I still that's have like I love a, you guys. I have a fantasy <laughs> that that's coming back someday. Hey, the, yeah. the, the Woodman is still hanging in the shop. Yeah. yeah. I, I just remember as I was getting into it and, you know, as a couple of friends, you know, handful of friends, maybe one or two that tried to get into it. <laughs> And for it, one or two. Well, not a lot of people <laughs> decide to try to take a crack at it, but that initial cost of entry, basically what I consider is getting to the ratchet. Getting to the ratchet is such a hard thing for most people to get that timing down. Once that clicks, it's like the door's open, but until you get there, it's almost not fun. You know, there's so many things you can't do and you can't work on things, you can't progress, but getting it the the learning curve was so it's so so sharp in the beginning it is it's a bit like math you know yeah the one by one you know you need to know your you know one thing builds on the next and i'm literally i just got myself in your trials motorcycle and i'm trying to back wheel hop and it's impossible for me yeah and and it's like those guys if you look at them they literally ride their motorcycles not like bicycles they back wheel hop and that's yeah that's like what you talk about the ratchet thing it's like i i mean i haven't really tried it that much but the few times i tried it it was just like i felt like yeah you know like, well the timing's all off right now you got to do throttle and foot brake versus <laughs> yeah. pedal kick and handbrake yeah 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 so. it's, but man that timing i i always equated it to you know like rubbing your belly patting your head hopping on one foot and like dealing cards like it's to get that mental timing to click it it really takes a while. No, the trials guys is a is a tribe of lone warriors, you know. And often there's like literally like you know you you meet so many guys, but they all like oh yeah, I'm the only guy in my town, you know, kind of. So. Yeah, and from 2005, the names are still the same. It's like it's the same guys. You're like oh yeah, I remember hearing about that guy out in Arizona or that guy up in Northern California. Yeah, you know, it's true. It's true. Those guys in Bend, Oregon, and it's like single digits, you know. Yeah, shame on the United States Cycling Federation not to put some effort into this. It's a good sport. Yeah. Nathan's roommate's brother. (laughs) (laughs) I am fond of those days when there would be a trials competition at pretty much every race. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, like Mammoths, those were classic races. You know, Big Bear, Rockhopper South, and... Every would be a spectator event and everybody would hang out and you could actually see a lot, you know, like in a cross country race, they come by every 25 minutes and then, yeah. you know, so, and then you sit around and wait, but, um, right. 
the trials you it was kind of a, a little show and it was cool you yeah. know a time and a place for everything we, we, we i think in a way we can be also count ourselves lucky that we were around in those days and right. got to experience that yeah. when the sport was so new and everything was so exciting and and you know so and things just, are, just by way of, of example what what do the trials competitions look like in in europe these days like attendance or number of competitors well some of those events are like downtown and they bring in all the obstacles like they bring in huge boulders and rocks and they yeah. have oh, they have man. boulders that are six foot tall <laughs> and these guys go up there and they and they have to like go on the little one inch little point and launch like an eight foot gap to, where they have to land on the front wheel on a slippery log that's wet and i mean it, it's unbelievable you, you couldn't <laughs> the, the best athletes in the world couldn't Can't do that couldn't do those courses on foot without a bike without using <laughs> their hands right you yeah. know like they, they couldn't it it's it's and it's it's just like and those guys are on a time limit so they have like 2 minutes so they they have to go as fast as they can it's not even yeah. you cannot even concentrate and take your time and try it two or three times you have to if you do, you know because if you don't make it through in 2 minutes and the courses are, are built so tough yeah. that that you you have no you have no time to waste so yeah it's crazy how those athletes just keep progressing the sport out of the spotlight. No one noticing. Yeah. Someone's like basically riding up a handball wall. Like, <laughs> no, those, those guys are true athletes in the athletic way. You know, like, I mean, Google, like, in one of those, the UCI trials, mountain bike world championships, somebody like Kenny Belay. Yeah. What they can do yeah. on a bike is really magic, you know. It's beautiful to watch. It's like a symphony, you know, and it's um yeah. and it's it's even a different level than Danny McCaskill. I mean Danny McCaskill he built in the the BMX and the speed and and he does incredible stuff. It takes high risks. And but what but some of those things those hardcore trials guys do, Danny couldn't do and and vice versa. But yeah. it's it's a different thing those competitions and it's it's fun yeah. to watch. I mean, if you can watch bloody golf on TV, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you would think a trials competition would be interesting to watch. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, ten thousand times over, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I was watching your uh, 1992 video, Hans No Way Ray, <laughs> um, and what was it like trousing on? the bikes from back then well first of all that video that that was a huge milestone in my life and my career you know that changed everything you know mm -hmm. richard long he was the president of gt bicycles he was the co-founder with gary turner of gt and he was kind of my mentor in a, in a lot of ways and he one day he came to me and said hans it's so difficult to explain people what you can do on a trial on a bike you know right. let's do one of those videos and we started doing a video on 15 minutes long with with personality with like some loud music short enough that people wanted to see more and it it was you know and it it like i said earlier it was like what what youtube was for danny it was like uh, this for me oh, and yeah. and but riding on those bikes well we didn't know any better hmm. so it was you know long stems yeah, and sometimes i look back and go like how Come, I I couldn't come to the conclusion ten years earlier that a lower bottom bracket would have been a lot better for back wheel hops. <laughs> or so you know, like, 
or shorter chains day, you know, like, but we didn't. I mean, we, we did come to a lot of conclusions. Some of them evolved right. over many years, some of right. them quicker, some of them, you know, but others you, you wonder sometimes. And, and honestly, I, I mean, even with mountain bikes, I ride the same trails like for the last 30 years now in Laguna. Right. And, Sometimes I wonder how did we get well. Down that's on those what I was. Tails with yeah. Richard Forks with U brakes with with one point two point oh tires. You know how do we get down? That opening scene of you dropping out of your backyard onto the holy mackerel. <laughs> that, was was like, that was yeah, steep. Yeah, very steep. That was. There was only three or four people who ever even attempted that one. How, but um, how many takes did that take? I don't know. I. I, I've written occasionally. Wonderly wrote it once or so, and Jim Busby wrote it once, and there's not many more people who even attempted <laughs> it. It was a gnarly little descent, but there was there's another trail in this video which is which is closed now, but it's it's, it's known as Directile. But right. yeah, in in Laguna and, and down to it's, the dog park, it's, it's a very small little single trail in this video, and and yeah. and nobody writes huh. it anymore these days, and and don't go there, but but. <laughs> The last I've seen it, it was like fifteen foot wide, you know, yeah. trail, you know, and and that that, that was that trail. In I saw video. you riding that on the Hartdale. I'm like, oh my gosh! Wait, so you rode direct dial in '92 on a Hartdale? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, oh, what, yeah. Telonics, all that stuff, PGs. What's classic, yeah. Hans? Is PGs we rode on Hartdales with know? rim with rim bricks. <laughs> yeah. What What's classic is you can sort of tell when. Someone is either cracking themselves up at their own jokes or they're really having a good time or what they just did surprises themselves. And when you make that drop on the opening scene, you can kind of tell that you're like, oh, crap, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, because you were like an autopilot. It was this really <laughs> steep shoot in my front yard where I lived. And halfway down, there was this S turn. And then yeah. at the bottom, there was a a wall or something you had to come to a stop <laughs> but you had to go fast and you had to kind of just go on autopilot and do that s turn without thinking about it just right. do it and and yeah and i think that kind of comes across with <laughs> yeah, and it's it's classic because so many videos now everything is so curated and everything is so like produced yeah. That that raw, that guttural, like, ooh, yeah, that was <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> oh, and I was always, a f I'm still like this. I don't have the patience. I mean, I don't know how Danny does it, like doing a trick like 300 times. He's a perfectionist, you know. Mm. But yeah. it's like I was like, all right, we got it, right? Next thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. like one one two takes, you know, and move yeah. on, you know, like. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Um. You know, one of the things that that you participate in is the the Wheels for Life. Yeah. Do you, Do you want to talk a little bit bit about that? Sure, sure. That's and kind of give us a like for the, people who have never heard of it. And yeah, you know. what's it about? The that, genesis of it? Well, that's a milestone in my life too, and a big part. And I came to the eleven years ago. I came to the to the conclusion. I mean, not the conclusion, but. I thought it was good to give something back. You know, the sport has been really good for me. I've been living my dream and be making a living out of bicycles. And I've been traveling a lot to these third world countries where bikes have a completely different meaning mm. than to us. You know, right. for most of us, bikes are toys or sports equipment. Yes, some of us use them for transportation too, but it's not as uh, crucial as for an 
in the third world, mobility is key for healthcare, for for um, education, uh, for yeah, and and to make a living. And anyway, so I started this charity called Wills for Life. We give bicycles to people in need of transportation in developing countries. And to date, we've given away almost 11,000 bikes in 32 different countries. Wow, that's That's awesome. And we are very proud of the fact it's really my wife and myself. We have a board of directors. We have a lot of people from the bike industry do help us. But we're very proud of the fact that we are very pure charity. Nobody gets paid in our organization Every any any time I've ever went to one of the projects, I paid the flights out of my own pocket, oh. or combined it with a work trip, right, you know. Right. And um, we we cut out all the middlemen, and we we go, yeah, we we go straight to the source, and we literally can tell you. I could give you probably eleven thousand names, you know. We know where oh, the bikes amazing. went. It's not just here's a container, or you know. And we um, so it's a nice thing, and it's it's cool to hear the stories of what it does to these people and um and i always said i would do it as long as i can afford to do it you know as i get paid by my sponsor still so and of course we have it's not all my personal money yes we put plenty of time and money into it but but we get donations from the from individual people and bigger sponsors but for us the the two kids who do a lemonade sale and raise $85 is just as important as a $3,000 yeah. check because I would, I love to sh- show people that we can all make it different. It's not just down to the Bill Gates of this world. And so that's kind of one of my little side missions that we promote with Wills for Life. So let, let's say someone listening wants to, to send some and, and help with that. How, how could they go about that? Well, you can go to our website, wills4life.org, with a number four in the middle, and there are some ideas, but, you know, you can obviously donate money, but you can also help us just promote our cause, you know, put on a little fundraiser. And, and I tell you, no, no effort is too small for us. So if you want to just do a fundraiser in your living room and show, get the DVD from us and show our film to your family, you know, and or maybe do a bike ride across uh, Switzerland and raise some money from sponsors and friends and or do a lemonade sale or <laughs> or you know, go clean out your garage, sell some of sell your old rollerblades and donate proceeds to us or you know, so once a year we do a gala, but um that's the best way to support us, help help us spread the message or or uh, donate money yeah. for a bike. We don't deal with used bikes. There's nothing wrong with organizations who do it, but those organizations have a completely different infrastructure than us. They need a lot of volunteers who collect the bikes and repair them, and then they still need to raise all that money to ship those containers to around the world. So, so we don't have that infrastructure. We buy the bikes locally. It oh, fuels the wow. local economy. It makes it easier to find spare parts for sure. the people. And we cut out all these logistics and and corruption and taxes and customs and duties and stuff. So, so you're yeah. buying the bikes in the economy where they're going to be used. Yeah, oh, that yeah. makes that makes sense. That's cool. yeah. And we buy you know like you you buy a bike that's 150 bucks or so in on average, and it's not a great. It's not you know you have to be realistic. Those bikes have a lifespan of five to ten years max. You know. So, right. but that's that's what you get for 150 bucks. But at the same time, 
a eight hundred dollar bike probably wouldn't last much longer either, you know. So right. um, and you you find the bike that's right. If if we're in a hilly area, we make sure the bikes have have uh, gears. We always get the heavy duty frames and the, maybe the stronger wheels. We get we racks are very important because sure. they often transport stuff. Right. I mean, right. people literally. I have I have photos of people transporting like two hundred pounds like, of yeah, mangoes exactly. or. I I I seen a guy have a chassis of a car of a Volkswagen Polo oh on his on his bike and drives it you know like, wow. the bike transporting yeah. the car yeah. that's amazing how do you find the recipients for the bikes and um, we work with um local people with project leaders on site so we don't I don't always go personally I have been plenty of times but we have a thorough application process where we can read between the lines and where we f select people. We start out. We often work with other um, charities or with NOGs, with churches sometimes. Mm. They're often very good organized. They know the poorest of the poor. And we start out often with little, as little as 10 or 20 bikes. And they have to send us a report, those project leaders, receipts, photos, little bios. And literally, if you give me... A small project is about fifteen hundred dollars. That's ten bikes. But if you give me fifteen hundred bikes, I you'll get a report for those ten bikes oh, in wow. like maybe four or five or six months later. And that report not only has the receipts and the photos, but it's personalized to you. It's not like ten other people who get that same report. It says thank you, Tani, for for um, because. The bike, I can now, I don't have to walk to school for eight kilometers a day or whatever, you know. So it's very personal and, and, and these project leaders, we control them and there's ways. It, you'd be surprised, even with the internet, even if somebody in Africa and, and these people start policing themselves in a, in a way because they know if the project fails, we're not going to send them any more bikes, you know. Mm. Or if, it, and there's a lot of applications we do turn down, you know. If a guy writes in the application, we'll, the average person makes like a dollar a week and then he writes in the application well the bikes cost 95 dollars and to assemble each bike costs another five dollars and you go like oh what are you are you saying it takes like a person five weeks to, to, yeah, <laughs> to assemble the bike it's like you know like so anyway so there's little ways like oh, this yeah. but, but we have we have local project leaders and the projects you know then if they prove themselves, there comes a second phase, a third phase, and some phases now we turn the bikes, you know, and we know these people are spot on and they give us awesome reports and they are, you know, and you can go there and you meet the people and sometimes I literally, you see the difference it makes in their lives. I mean, in, in Malawi is one country where we give away ambulance bikes. We we don't do that so often, but an ambulance bike costs more. It has a trailer, basically. But the, the very first ambulance bike we delivered, the very first hour, it saved a life. You know, like they were, like, took it straight to uh, oh, gosh. somebody's hut. And, and I went recently to Kenya when, when we did Kilimanjaro and visited a village that I had been before. And we gave 50 more bikes away while we were there and filmed it. And 
these guys now, the one guy is now going to university and wants to become a doctor. You know, wow. like he was an orphan, yeah. you know, his dad had died. His, he had to feed his mother. He was 13 at the time. And then he got a bike and he went to s school. This, this guy now, he, he has a tin roof on his hut before it was straw. And, and he has like two cows now before he had one goat. And he, because of the bike, he could get work as a construction worker. So it's amazing what the bikes can do. Mobility is really the key. Wow. Right. That gives me goosebumps. It's so cool. Yeah, that's that's a really cool. It it reminds me of um, I remember this uh, the five hour energy guy is doing a lot of uh, research on developing technologies for the the basically the bottom fifty percent of the world and and um, you know he's focusing on like a simple healthcare technology and then like electrical generation to make a simple electrical generator that can be made from bicycle parts. Um, some water purification and some like geothermal power, but he's focusing on things that support probably the same people that you're supporting. And it's these simple technology uh, gains that we totally take for granted that revolutionize their life. Yeah. And it's a, it's really cool to see that. No, that's cool. That's a lot of people who give back and it's awesome. And, and I think we all could. And anybody living in the Western world, I tell you, no matter how poor we think we might be in comparison to the Beverly Hills people or whatever, we like so much better off than like 80% of the people out there. So Right, right. Well, that's that's really cool. It's, it's great to hear that you, you've been doing that. And yeah, I hope some of our listeners take a look at your website and decide you get to uh, participate. Great on. So I'm going to, when I, when I, when we started coordinating with you to come onto the podcast, uh, did a little bit of research, and I, I think some of what our listeners are would we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about what got you into biking, what did young, really young Hans look like, and then also like a little bit into man GT for thirty one years, the Swatch team for nineteen years, <laughs> like what did that? How did that evolve? And, and come about. So, well, first of all, no, but none of your listeners are listening anymore. We just <laughs> talked for almost an hour, so we just talk to ourselves now. <laughs> no, but for me, it started out. I grew up in Germany, and um, even though I have a, you know, I had a German mother and a Swiss father, and I have a, ended up with a Swiss passport, even though I have a German tongue. But long story short, we had a motorcycle trials club in my hometown, and me and my, my friends wanted to imitate those or ride them, and we were just too young, and we started imitating them on bicycles. And the next thing we knew is there were some other people in, in northern Germany and in Spain and England also doing it, you know, all connected to the motorcycle trial scene. So we started converting Stingrays and... Later, when BMX came to Europe in about 81, we started converting BMX bikes into trials bikes. We put like three-speed hubs in the back and drum brakes in the front and made the handlebars wider to make a... Oh, man. Put a smaller chain ring in the front for clearance. And so that's kind of how I grew up into the sport and I never really... I never really switched to motorcycles and we ended up growing up with the sport. We didn't right. invent it. We didn't start it. And, and then I was lucky. Yeah. The, and I actually retired from trials riding when I was 18 and I went to what? university oh. and I got to go. I tell you the story real quick. And I got invited in the biggest TV game show in Europe at the time. 
And I mean, you, you, we all know, you know, like if you have a, a million views on YouTube nowadays, that's right. a pretty big deal for right, most right. of us, right? Sure, and sure, sure. Danny had 40 million or probably now 60 by now. Mm. I was on this TV game show and I did a, they, some celebrities were on there betting that certain guys and the one guy was like saying, this guy can ride a, ba- a bicycle on a, on four balance beams that are put to a square and nobody could picture how the bike would get around the turns, sure. you know? And it's, you know, so that was my bet, but 41 million viewers live. No go. way. This, what? This wow. was before internet. 41 before, million? This was when only three channels in Germany. And this was by, this was the biggest TV show that was on only once <laughs> every six or eight weeks. And I mean, guests like Jane Fonda and stuff. I mean, literally Jane Fonda was on the show <laughs> oh that, you know, God. she wasn't my bed partner. But, but anyway, <laughs> so I did this show and. I didn't cash in on my... I was a household name in Germany overnight. It was like, you know, like... Whatever, Andre, big, big yeah, brother. Yeah. And I had this invitation from Kevin Norton, who was this American trials rider who used to come to Amer- to Europe because trials is a European sport, unlike mountain biking right. and BMX. Kevin used to come, and he was sponsored by like BMX brands like Kuvahara and Haru. Right, right. But he wasn't even in the top 30 in in europe you know and we were all amateurs you know oh man and kevin one day told me say hans you need to come to america because there's a new sport in america it's called mountain biking and they always have a trials competition as part of the thing and you need to show americans what real trials is oh man and i figured yeah this would be a great end to my career you know i never <laughs> raced bmx but i always looked at the bmx scene i looked at these guys who would make six-figure incomes drive Porsches, 18-year-old kids, you know, BMX right. bros. And Kevin got me over here, and I owe it really all to Kevin Norton. You know, he lived in Corona de la Mar uh, here in Newport, and he introduced me to everybody in the bike industry. I mean, not only did I meet the rats the very first week, because he was a rat, and and a lot of the rats were riding trials at the time. I mean, the rats had four or five national champions in their Whoa. Are rats. I mean, wow. that's, it's a little trivia. Nobody knows. But the very first week, BMX Plus magazine did a video, 101 freestyle tricks, and all the BMXers and freestylers were in it. And I got to meet all my heroes. And like, literally, like, I was the little intermission guy doing some trials. And then, <laughs> and then, like, he brought me to all these bike companies, and everybody thought trials would be the next big thing. After BMX and skateboard, they saw trials would be. There was right. this, this was before mountain biking really took off. This was before the boom oh, right. in '87, and and then all of a sudden, twenty-inch bikes died, and and mountain biking kind of took over. But trials was still part of that scene. But anyway, so Kevin brought me over, and we got a phone call one day at his house, and it was like a guy from Mountain Biking Magazine saying, hey, Swatch is looking for two trials guys to come to New York for a photo shoot this afternoon, tickets at the airport. We went to LAX, flew to New York, and there's this famous photo of me in the taxi cab. And out of that started, it wasn't just that, that was the beginning of a 19-year-long sponsorship. And Swatch was the original Red Bull. You know, they were into extreme yeah. sports and stuff oh, way before right. Red Bull. Sure. They paved the road for Red Bull. I mean, Red Bull took it to a whole new level. But, and one little funny story to add to this is at the time, Swatch was also doing clothing besides the watches. 
And mm. I told them, I was like fresh off the boat, you know, I had no sponsor. I said, hey, if, if you guys want to sponsor, I, I can wear your clothes, you know. It was actually sweatpants and stuff. It was like streetwear, you know. <laughs> right. like That was nude right then and there. <laughs> right. you know? I, I was just like... You know, I need like, clothes. So anyway, I said, "Hey, if you want to, if you pay me five hundred bucks, you know, I can pay rent and and I wear your clothes and all my competitions and shows." And, and they were really keen in me doing trial shows for them at shopping oh, wow. malls and stuff. Right, right, right. So anyway, a week later, they sent me a contract, and it was over a thousand bucks. For, it was for a thousand bucks a month, and and that oh. never once happened to me again in my career that somebody gave me twice more as much than what I asked you asked for. Yeah. So, so anyway, but. But anyway, that swatch was a big reason why I then decided to stay because I went at the time I went to the university in Germany studying and, and I decided I stay a little bit longer and then another little bit longer and a little bit right, longer and sure. two years later, I'm still here. <laughs> but, um, swatch wanted me to do a lot of trial shows for them together with skateboarders and stuff. Oh, right. And would literally go on tour with Rodney Mullen and with, um, I, I I used to do shows with Rob Roskop from from Santa Cruz, you oh, know, when he was oh, yeah. when he was a pro skateboarder, Natas Kaupas, all those guys, you know. So so that was kind of that was kind of yeah how it how it started. We should cross cross germinate our uh, our shows and have you and Rob get back together, and we could have yeah. uh, Hansra and Rob yeah, Roskop. Yeah, we had Roskop on here. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. I would love to talk about the old days. Yeah. So, so then, so that's that's pretty amazing. Um, how did GT come about and kind of walk us through that journey? I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. Well, Cam, uh, Kevin, again, you know, Kevin was really interested in, in getting trials bigger. So he, as part of that, he wanted other bike companies to get behind mm. trials. Mm. And it was really so hot. I mean, Diamondback, Schwinn, they all had prototypes in the back of their workshops. Oh, what? And they were ready for trials to explode. Whoa. And a few companies came out with models and, uh, you know, like Haro and Kuvahara. And then some of the smaller companies like Ibis and Yeti had trials bikes and, yeah. and a few others probably. But, um, and then, um, Penny Westman was this other lady that was, uh, she was a really good friend of Kevin. And she worked at GT. She was one of the best salespersons in the bike industry period. And I don't know if you heard of her, but, um, She's legendary, and she came from BMX, and and she um, she talked GT into, hey, why don't you guys sponsor the Strauss guy? And Richard Long was like, all right, let's let's start out. And yeah, they, I mean, I got two hundred fifty dollars a month, but that paid, <laughs> you know, that helped pay the rent or whatever. And it wasn't about, but they gave me a chance, and I also started doing some shows. But the one thing I realized quickly is. They even offered me to go on summer tour with the freestyle team. And back then, these big BMX companies, they had these freestyle teams, two, mm, or right. two or three of them. And they would go on summer tour and they would literally go to a different bike shop every day, do a show right. in the parking lot, right, right. do a promotion. And it would really boost sales. And that was the way. I mean, there was no internet. There was nothing on TV. Uh, that's, that's how, how they kids would have the magazines right. and they would have these summer tours. And it was... It was you a big thing if like the GT team or the Haro team would come to your town. And I think this is how the industry could learn from the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they could. I think there's time for that again. And but you know what? What I learned was they were saying, well, you know, it was basically like four guys traveling in a van, having one Motel Six room they share, you know, and like <laughs> oh, driving man. eight hours between shops every day. It wasn't. And I was like, I. I 
I mean, I didn't make money in Europe, but I did some trial shows. And I made more. I figured I made more money than that in Germany. You know, oh. I cannot be part of that. So I started finding ways to get creative. And I would like contact. There would be a local trade show in San Diego, and I would contact the organizer and say, "Hey, I can do trial shows there. If you set up the trials obstacles, and let me have some banner space." So the next thing is, I'm in the middle of the trade show, the center of attraction. You know, I get all the media attention. The promoter loves it. The sure. spectator love it. I go to Shimano and go like, "Hey, if you give me a hundred bucks, um, I put up two banners." Did the same thing with Airwalk and GT. Huh, the next thing right. I know, I make five hundred bucks, and I might even get a free ten by ten booth from the promoter. You know, which would cost two thousand dollars, and I can give it to one of my sponsors. Right. And it was a lot of work for me to piece it all together and to hang up the banners, but. That was better than going on summer tour making eighty making bucks a day, you know. So, so I, I found ways to become creative and to get some value to everybody, and right. and I learned in that context also to make sure that everybody I work with is works away happy, and if that happens, most likely I will walk away happy too, you know. Right. So I looked after people, and I think back to that sponsor book you mentioned i do make the sponsor book and it's kind of notorious now in the bike industry of the people who work with me it's they get this big book on the table and it's like every year year after year and it's filled i mean i've i've had over 400 front covers of bike magazines you know Ooh, that's so I've, incredible i've had oh thousands and thousands of hours on tv and um so so but the hard part is actually not it's not just it's not just hard to to get this year after year but then to document it and then, you know, yeah. and I'm a one man show. I'm my own manager. I mean, my wife helps me a lot and she has some great advice, but, but it's like people don't understand that this is like way more than a full time job, you know? <laughs> oh, I mean, right, the charity right. alone is a full time job. And I mean, and that's, I have to really credit my wife for that. Even, you know, she does more, puts more hours in than I do, but we both do. But, but it's like, um, but that's, Making sure everybody you work with is happy has been a big reason, I think, why I why I'm still around. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you might—I don't know how many people do you know in the industry that have been with one company, like your relationship with GT for 31 years. I don't think there's many like that. And and how has that? I don't think there's any. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there has been. Um, How has that survived? There hasn't been anybody with a major sponsor, like even Tony Hawk, who has been probably been around kind of as long as I have. But he, you know, he was with Paul Peralta, you know, for a big time of his career. You know, so he hasn't had the same major sponsor. You know, there has been people with long careers, and the closest one gets. And that's some people debate that they they throw in Conrad Anker's name. Hmm. Um, he's been with North right, Face for right. a long, long time, but he's been in the last like he's still active, you know. So you have to give it to him. But he has been more like a team manager, you know, than a so so to be with a major company for that long. It's I mean, <laughs> it's it's beyond my own expectations. I would have mm -hmm. never dreamt of that, you know. So. So, but you have to keep throwing wood in the fire. You have to, it's up to you. I mean, I could have retired ten years ago, and nobody would have given a shit. You know, it would have been yeah, oh yeah, I remember Hans from the nineties, but yeah, it was time to retire. But 
I'm still I'm trying to be relevant and you know so and I'm trying to give my sponsors a return on their investment and I'm trying to become creative and and I'm trying to inspire others to live their dreams or you know have fun or whatever it is. Yeah. It is inspirational. Yeah. I mean I think you're truly one of the inventors of free ride and I think that you know the path we're we're really all about having fun on the bike and competing, but not just competing. And I feel like you really set a stage for us to be able to have customers who saw it that way with, you know, with your lifestyle and, and your approach to the sport and all that. So thanks. Well, yeah. thank, thank you, you know, thank you. And, um, no, a lifestyle, I think that's the magic word, you know, that's what life should be all about. Living, yeah. living a lifestyle you enjoy. And, for us it's bikes right <laughs> we stoked man we've taken a lot of your time thanks so much yeah. is there any anything that you wanted to get out there that we didn't get to um no i think we talked <laughs> yeah. i think yeah. we talked people silly you know <laughs> i yeah. feel like we should have a part two <laughs> yeah we will yeah. Yeah. no there's a lot to talk and i i have to say i am fortunate to sit here on this table and share some stories and there's so much more and, and recently i mean you see in the coffee table book we've done or the talks i do and, oh yeah where can and, people get your coffee table book uh, they get that on my website huntsray.com but i'm not trying to sell the book i'm <laughs> I, i'm trying to make the point of how even that book has only a fraction in there of the mm. stuff that I got to experience and, and 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 go through and just to be part of this evolution of our sport from from some of the things we talked about to the evolution of the bikes the evolution of the trails yeah you know like all this it's it's kind of cool i i'm really fortunate that i that I didn't take an apprenticeship at my local bank or something, you know, or, or that, they did, that they didn't expect ex accept me, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. so life could have been different. Man, yeah. Hans, um, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, this is this been has been freaking awesome. Right on, thanks, guys. <laughs> cool. All right, for Nathan and Aachen, with uh, sincere thanks to Hans. Love the bike you ride. <laughs>